Take your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8 as our text this morning, and then we'll make our prayer to God once again. Aren't you glad he doesn't get tired of us coming into the throne room? And he looks forward to our frequent visits. Some, how, you ever feel like you're bothering God because you're, oh yeah, Lord, one more thing. And, but he never feels like that. That's us. And that's a precious thing that we have, the opportunity to pray. Genesis chapter 3, and uh, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> we'll read those uh, eight verses, and then we'll, we'll pray. The Bible says in Genesis 3, 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today. Lord, I sense that, that uh, we need your help right now. Lord, I pray that you'd just uh, cause a quiet to fall across our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'd help me, that you'd fill, fill me with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you'd run out any unclean spirit from this sanctuary. And let us have this space of time protected, Lord, that we might hear from you and that we might know what it is that you're trying to communicate to us as individuals and then to know how to put these things into practice. We're going to thank you and praise you for all that you do. We love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Satan's attack on the first man and, and woman uh, was with an assault on the Word of God. Uh, really, Eve's sole defense against the insinuations and the suggestions of the adversary should have been the Word of God. Um, it's been said, I don't know where I read this, but I know I read it somewhere. It's been said that uh, Satan entered the Garden of Eden with the subtlety of a serpent, the genius of a fox, and the beauty of an angel. And it's no marvel, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. We have this idea of what the devil looks like largely because of how we've been influenced by Hollywood uh, or things like that. Uh, but the devil uh, doesn't look like the devil. You know what he looks like? He looks like God. He looks like him. I heard somebody say one time that the the, the lie that is the most dangerous is the one that's closest to the truth. And, uh, boy, that's Satan. He's so close to the truth, and he's the most dangerous one. I think we see that displayed in this story in, 
Genesis chapter 3. We've got to remember that. It's no marvel. It's no marvel uh, that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He's the father of murder, the father of lies. And he transformed himself into a minister of righteousness and good back in the Garden of Eden. And if I end up saying Garden of Gethsemane, I had to fight myself yesterday as I prepared not to write that and not to rehearse that in my mind. So when I, if I say Garden of Gethsemane today, I mean Garden of Eden. And <laughs> just, so, just so we're clear on that. That's my disclaimer. But the, the, the father of lies and the father of murder shows up in the Garden of Eden and he's disguised uh, in, in righteousness and good. He's coming to Eve and, and by the way, he does it the same way today. Nothing's changed. He still comes today to us uh, disguised as a minister of righteousness and of good. You know, when the end times come and, and the Antichrist shows up, uh, that one who's going to win the favor of the world, he's not going to be a bad guy. He's going to be a likable character. He's going to be somebody that comes across as a real smooth talker. You know, he's going to uh, be someone that, that is uh, appreciated by those that are still left in this world. But uh, the devil, he's, a, he's the instigator of those who go about saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace, you know, as Isaiah or Jeremiah 6.14 says. And then again in Jeremiah 8.11, uh, those who call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, you know. That's Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 20. Well, don't we live in that day and age when all that we knew as good is not good anymore? It's called the Durkheim Constant. Emile Durkheim was a French sociologist, and he came up with this idea that, that um, well, it's not really his idea, it's truth, that the world gets worse and worse. And as it gets worse and worse, the standard gets worse and worse, and, but the, what seemed bad before doesn't seem so bad after a while, and be, pretty soon what was bad just becomes normal. That's kind of what troubles me about our president's appointing of this openly gay man as the, as the temporary uh, fellow for the uh, uh, Department of uh, National Intelligence. Openly gay man. He's an ambassador uh, to Germany. It troubles me. The reason it troubles me is because what that does in our society is it normalizes that behavior. Well, see, this gay man, he's in this high public office. That troubles me that our president made that decision. He's not a permanent. It's not a permanent position. But still, that he used, because it normalizes. It makes us to be calloused against that, that sin. And, uh, and I, I would even dare say that we've, we've come a long way as believers in, ex, in accepting uh, not just that sin, uh, but I'll stick with that example. It doesn't affect us like it used to. Sodomy doesn't bother us like it used to. You know? And uh, it's become the new normal. And anything, then Durkheim's uh, theory... Uh, went on to say that anything that was good and was wholesome then becomes ostracized and peculiar and eventually bad. That's why every liberal uh, will try to end a good argument by saying, well, you're just a homophobe or you're just a xenophobe or you're just a misogynist. You know, so th those, are, those are conversation stopping words, but it's an example of that Durkheim constant how what once was good and perfectly acceptable is now evil and wicked. You know, the, the uh, liberal left likes to preach about and teach about being tolerant, except 
If it's about Christianity, of course, they can't be tolerant of that. Christianity needs to be done away with. There's a bill up in the California House uh, that would literally outlaw the Bible. I don't know if you've seen that in the news. They're really having a battle down there in California. All of our good churches down there, good gospel-preaching Bible churches are in a battle down there. And let me tell you something, friend. That's coming here, and it's going to come to every state in this union. And that's the way this nation is going. I'm telling you, we better buckle up and hang on because we're in for quite a ride. And we better decide if we're committed or not. If we're not committed, cut, uh, what does it say, uh, cut bait or fish, right? Fish or cut bait. And I'd say that to all believers this morning in the sound of my voice. Look, either fish or cut bait. Be committed or get out. Don't, don't play the fence. You'll not hear very many Baptist preachers, I guess, maybe say that. But if you're not going to, if you're not going to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, then just go do your thing until you're ready. Because you, he'll, he'll bring you around to that way of thinking, you know. Amen? Are you with me this morning? This devil, he's a wicked one. He's a father of murders. He's a father of lies. He cries peace, peace when there is no peace. He exchanges good for evil and evil for good and puts it in the hearts of those who do the same thing in our culture today. It's disgusting. To all Satan's craft and cunning, Eve need only have replied, but God said that's all she needed to say. That's all she needed to say. She didn't have to explain it. She didn't have to think about it. She didn't have to come up with her own conclusion. All she had to do was rest on what God had said, and every one of his deceitful temptations would have been taken apart right there in the Garden of Eden. Now, I'd like you to remember this statement because we're going to come back to it at the end of the message this morning. But in the last analysis, the temptation in the Garden of Eden hinged on one matter and one matter only, and the matter was belief. Would Eve believe God, or would she believe Satan? Now, I'd like to bring to you this morning things that, this, that Satan will use to attack. Uh, every, every child of God will use to attack every believer, really will use to attack every human being that's born uh, in, in this world. First of all, Satan's attack is a three-pronged attack upon the Word of God. That's the first thing he goes after. He goes after the Word of God. It's a three-pronged attack on the Word of God. We find that in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. We'll highlight some of these as we go through them. The first thing the devil likes to do in that three-pronged attack is he likes to raise doubt. He attacks the authority of God's Word. He raises doubt and he attacks the authority of God's Word. Look at Genesis 3 and verse number 1. What does the devil say to Eve? Yea, hath God said? Yea, hath God said? He's attacking the authority of of the Word of God. And ladies and gentlemen, we must never doubt the authority of the Word of God. If God said it, that settles it. We can take out that middle portion that we've talked about uh, before. We don't even have to believe it. Because if God said it, that settles it. That's it. That's the authority of God's Word. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, in, in verse number 13, the Apostle Paul is writing to the saints of Thessalonica when he said, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in the truth, the word of God. Now I'd like to ask this morning, do we believe and do we receive the word of God as the word of God? When the word of God is opened in this moment in time as, as we come to this point in the service, as we open the Word of God, do we recognize in our heart of hearts, do we consciously make the decision uh, to choose to believe that when this book is open, an act of God, 
uh, is about to take place because what we read from today is the very Word of God. And the things that I say are not nearly as important to the things that thus saith the Lord. And as the preacher of God's Word, I stand before you today and I try to bring you a message uh, just like that. The things that God has said, I might uh, help to cause the sense and give the sense of what God's Word says. I don't interpret it any differently than it's printed in His book. Uh, but I uh, might try to explain it to help us apply it to our lives today. But um, we've got to receive this book as it is intended to be received. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But uh, do we receive the Word of God as the Word of God? I'd like you to contemplate that. Do, when I have this book open in my lap, uh, do I receive it? Is this to me the Word of God? And it should be, because we should never doubt the authority of God's Word. Uh, we, from time to time, perhaps we do. Uh, perhaps we've bought into the devil's lies that, uh, and, and heard the same thing from the devil. Yea, hath God said. And we've begun to question the Word of God. And we've listened too much maybe to the commentaries. And we focus too much on what uh, other people say about the Word of God when we ought to be focusing on the Word of God itself. By the way, the best commentary on the Word of God is the Word of God. And so we see these things. We need to ask ourselves that. Do we believe and receive that the Word of God uh, is the Word of God as the Word of God? You know, here's a problem, folks. We, we've lost our fear of God. We've lost our fear of God. And, and in order to lose our fear of God, we had to change the God we feared. Uh, now, we like the fact. We like the fact that Jesus came to earth as man. We find Christianity in that state today. That, uh, people, Christians all over the place. I'm talking to the Christians this morning. Not the unbelievers, but Christians like to think about Jesus and his, uh, his kindness and his friendliness and his tolerance and, and so forth. And, and uh, you know, they, they throw around things like the, the essential doctrines of our faith. And if it's not an essential doctrine, it doesn't matter. I've even heard good Christian people say, well, if Jesus didn't say it specifically, it's not recorded in God's word, then it doesn't matter. And it's because we've changed, uh, our, uh, changed the God we feared. And so we like, to, we like to think of Jesus uh, and how he became a man, but we, we forget, we forget that when Jesus became man, he never ceased to be God. And, and we've done the same thing with God altogether. We've, we've changed the likeness of God into man, into man. We've brought him down to man's level, and we've not treated him with the reverential respect that we should. And we've lost our fear of God because we've changed the God that we feared. And in the process, what happens is we begin uh, to not give His Word, as words in His, in his book, uh, the proper attention. And uh, we, it's brought on sometimes by the devil's attack of doubt. And so uh, we see this illustration, as a matter of fact, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Numbers uh, chapter 15. Uh, Numbers chapter 15, uh, Moses uh, has just given to the people uh, the offerings for uh, ignorant sins. People uh, that would do things and they didn't recognize, oh, that was a sin and so forth. And uh, so uh, he's just gotten done talking about that. If you remember a message I preached a while ago about how that God commanded the Jews to put a ribbon of blue around the borders of their garments, and that was to remind them of the heavenlies, that, they're, that they were God's people. So no matter where they reached, they saw that ribbon of blue as a constant reminder 
They looked down to see where their feet were taking them. It was a ribbon of blue. They'd be reminded they're, uh, they're the people of God. And so they had to behave themselves differently in this world. And so Moses has just laid these things out, and, and there's a man in Numbers chapter 15 and verse number 30. And the Word of God says uh, uh, down there, well, let me give you some background here. Verse number 30, But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land, or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and the soul that shall, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people, because the Lord hath despised, because he, I'm sorry, because he hath despised the word of the Lord, and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be upon him. So he moves from the sins of ignorance to the sins of presumption. If you recall in David's sin of killing Uriah and committing adultery with Bathsheba, he, when he prayed for forgiveness after Nathan the prophet called him out on it, he asked God to forgive him for his sins of presumption. And so the sin of presumption is called out. It's singled out from what Moses had been talking about. And, um, and what this is, is this idea that a person has heard what the Word of God said, but they doubt, and they begin to ask themselves, is that really what God meant? And so they presume that that's not what God meant and that God will be okay with me doing this. And as the story goes on, the Jews find this man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And you know what happened to him? They put him in ward because they really didn't know. They, they doubted themselves the word of God and they inquired of the Lord, what are we supposed to do with this guy? All he was doing, he broke the Sabbath, but all he was doing was picking up sticks. I mean, a minor thing, a non-essential thing. Uh, you know, perhaps he was gathering sticks to cook himself a meal or heat up some water. I don't, we don't know why he was gathering the sticks, but he was doing it on the Sabbath. And the Bible tells us he was doing it presumptuously. He, he, looked, he knew what the Word of God said, but he began to doubt it. And, and so then they take him, they put him in ward, and the Lord says, stone him. And they stoned him to death. And that's a, a biblical illustration of how uh, Satan will take that thing of doubt. It's a three-pronged attack against the Word of God, and he'll raise up doubt, and he'll cause us to ask ourselves, is that really what the Lord meant? Is it when, when God said that in his Word? Oh, that's a trick of the devil. That's what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. The second prong and that three-pronged attack is the attack of denial. So not only does Satan attack the authority of God's word, Satan attacks the accuracy of God's word. We alluded to this just a little bit. Look at verse Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 4, if you will. Now he's attacking the accuracy of God's word. The accuracy of God's word we find in verse number 4, ye shall not surely die. He's saying that's not accurate. In shrouded denial, the devil inferred, is that exactly what God said? He was saying in so many words, he was saying, surely that's not what God meant. Um, Ye shall not surely die. That's why we must assert that the word of God is to be interpreted according to its plain meaning, conveyed it by its grammatical construction and the context in which it is found. You might be familiar with the name D.A. Carson. He was quoting his father, who was a Canadian minister, who said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And a proof text is always a dangerous thing. In other words, if we take a verse of Scripture and do not consider it 
in its grammatical construction and the context that it is within, we are in danger of forming a false doctrine by the misuse of Scripture. Let me say it again. A text without context is a pretext for a proof text. That's a dangerous thing. Are you hearing me this morning? It is an attack of Satan to attack the accuracy of God's Word. I want to warn you, it ought to send up a red flag for you when the preacher stands in the pulpit and he says things like, a better translation of this word would be. That is a dangerous, dangerous statement. And I've called many, uh, many folks out on it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I believe the word of God is the word of God. And that every word of God is pure. And that, uh, that, that we don't, even the word is from last Sunday morning, that little that little linking verb is so important that it's there in the place where it is. And every word of God is pure. He's a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. And there's nothing that needs to be changed. There's nothing that needs to be modified. And we ought to uh, receive it as it is. And it's a uh, normal uh, grammatical construction. It's plain meaning. Plain speech is easily understood. Boy, beware of that. Beware of that because the devil will use that to challenge the accuracy of God's Word. Uh, theology must form our thoughts. Our thoughts should not form our theology. And all God's people said, Amen. The third prong on that uh, attack against the Word of God is the, is the prong of delusion. So we talked about the prong of doubt. Uh, Satan attacks the authority of God's Word. We talked about the prong of denial. Satan attacks the accuracy of God's Word. Then the third prong is delusion. A delusion is a belief or impression that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by truth, reality, or rationale. A delusion is a belief or an impression that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by truth, reality, or rationale. In the end times, the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, that there will be strong delusions so that those who are left behind after the rapture of the church uh, should believe a lie. Now, if you're here this morning with the plan of coming to faith in Christ uh, when, if and when the church is raptured out, I'm going to tell you it's going to be a near impossibility. As the Word of God warns us, there will be people saved during that time, the tribulation time period. But there, it is going to be so difficult for various reasons. Number one, because of what the Bible tells us about this strong delusion. And it won't matter what reality says, what rationale says, or what truth says. It will be nearly impossible uh, to, to believe on Christ after the rapture of the church. Uh, number one, because the Word of God says so. Number two, because the influence of the Holy Spirit will be gone. It will be gone. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer, and if the believer is gone, the Holy Spirit is gone. And so there'll be this strong delusion as it's prescribed, described in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will be missing, uh, will be off this earth, and there won't be the influence of the Holy Spirit to draw people to faith in Christ. So if you're here this morning, and you're planning to come to faith in Christ after the rapture of the church, I, I want to warn you, don't go with that plan. I've talked to many people who have told me so that they were going to wait and see, uh, that they were going to live more of their life, and they, had, they wanted to do some more fun things. They felt like that, that being saved would keep them from having fun. I don't know about that because I've been saved an awfully long time, and it sure has been fun. Uh, amen. 
Uh, some of the funniest things that I've ever experienced have been in church. Uh, but we want to see, you want to experience a, a wild ride, come to church. I mean, come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening. Some of the weirdest things that I've had happen to me have happened in church. And I'm not kidding. Uh, because, you know, there's a spiritual warfare that goes on around. And, and I'm not trying to spook anybody out. But I'll tell you, some weird stuff has happened uh, in, in church. Funny things. I mean, to look back on it now at the time, you're thinking, what is going on? <laughs> and you realize that this thing is real. It's real, man. And it's real. And uh, we ought to be careful about uh, the disdelusion that surrounds us. By delusion, Satan attacked the acceptability of God's word by getting Eve to see a supposed benefit of abandoning it. Look at Genesis 3.5. For God doth know in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, Eve just could not accept the fact that God would deny her such power and knowledge, and she became delusional. And despite what the truth was, no matter who would have confronted her and tried to rationalize with her or tried to to show her what reality was, the the devil used that prong of delusion and, and got Eve to a point where she just couldn't imagine that a good God would keep her from such a thing. I have a theory. That's all it is. It's my personal opinion. I cannot back this up with the Word of God. But I think that in Eve's heart, she knew that God wanted her to be like Him. They learned that, no doubt, in their daily walks and talks with God. And God would explain to them His desire for them uh, to be, uh, to be not as Him, but like Him. To have His character. You know, it's things like that. I'm not talking in... In, in a sense that they would be gods, as the devil said that they would be. But in a sense that he, he just wanted them to, to be one with him, just like God wants that from us today. He wants us to walk in the light, not in the dark. He wants to have fellowship with us. And I think, as I, it's my theory, that Eve saw a shortcut to becoming like God. Now, this doesn't excuse what she did. Boy, isn't that true of us today? We see a shortcut to becoming like God. We want the fast method. We're in a day we got drive-throughs and microwave ovens, and we don't even have to stop uh, uh, to make a phone call anymore. We can just use our cell phone. And it's the day of now, now, now. I want to be like God now. And so we take these shortcuts, and we, and we gobble up these things. The Bible tells us to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. The problem with that is we gobble up everything that comes our way. That's why we have to be discerning who we listen to and what books we read and things like that, especially concerning spiritual matters. And I think Eve, you see Eve here, she's delusional. She just cannot believe. She cannot accept that God would keep her uh, from, from these things. And, uh, and we see that she abandoned the Word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the devil is in the business of diluting God's truth. Now, let's look at how it misled Eve to a different belief. In Genesis 3, 6, the Word of God says, And when the woman saw that, first of all, the tree was good for food. That describes the lust of the flesh. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. That's the pride of life. Same trick. Same trick. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, you know it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Do you know what this world does to us? This world's influence on us, it makes us delusional. And no matter how much truth, no matter how much truth we encounter, no matter how much rationale, no matter how much reality we live in this delusional world, that we can, we can do it different, that, that we can make it, that I can, I can do this my way and still be successful in life. And I'm telling you, whether you're young or you're old, it doesn't work. It never will. It never has. It's delusion to think otherwise. So Satan attacks with those three things, doubt, denial, and delusion. Quickly, as we close, I'd like to show you Satan's, not only what we talked about first, but uh, uh, Satan's attack, but Satan's attainment. What did Satan achieve in the Garden of Eden? You find this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6. He attained Eve's deception. Okay, we've mentioned that already. But you know what else he did? He attained Adam's disobedience. So Eve's deception and Adam's disobedience. I'd like for you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 14. And we're going to see how that Satan attained Eve's deception, but he also attained, uh, attained Adam's disobedience. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 14. Look at the second half of that verse. Adam was not deceived. But the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. You see that? Satan attained Eve's deception, but, she, but he also attained Adam's disobedience. The first Adam, the one that we're talking about in Genesis chapter 3, the first Adam willingly followed his bride into death. I challenge any one of you men in this room to do any different than what Adam did. I'm not saying this was Eve's fault. By no means am I saying that. Adam made his decision, but he was not deceived. He willingly followed Eve into death. I don't want to entertain the thoughts of what if he hadn't. That'll give your brain a charley horse. But don't go there. Let's just stick with the easy point this morning. The fact is he did. The first Adam followed his wife into death willingly. What did God say to him? He said in Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the, he's talking to Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest of thereof, thou shalt surely what? Adam knew that when Eve took that fruit and, and partook of that fruit, that she was dead. I mean, her body was still alive, her soul, her mind, her emotion, her will was still alive, but Adam knew the consequence. It was clearly given to him by God, and he knew that his wife was dead. And so he willingly followed his wife into death. That was the first Adam. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. 
I'd like to talk about the antithesis of the first Adam, and that is the last Adam. The last Adam. You'll make your way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 45. I want to show you the last Adam. The last Adam is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We find that in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. I'm sorry, go to 1 Corinthians 15, 49. I said 45, I meant 49. The last Adam, a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we find in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Now, look at this. Look here. Once you get there, look up. The first Adam willingly followed his wife, his bride, to death. The last Adam willingly walked into death so that he and his bride could walk out. You see? Isn't that beautiful? The first Adam plunged all of humanity into death. The last Adam gives the ability to bring all of those out by his death, burial, and resurrection. And as we have borne, if you're at 1 Corinthians 15, 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is the first Adam, we, all who place their faith in Christ alone for their eternal salvation, shall also bear the image of the heavenly, the last Adam. What a beautiful picture. The last Adam, the first Adam and his bride entered into death. The last Adam and his bride left death behind. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 55. I've got to get there very quickly. I didn't keep up with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 55. So with that thought in mind, the first Adam and his bride entered into death. The, se- the last Adam and his bride left death behind. That is why we can say, O death, where is thy sting? Death has no more sting because of the last Adam. You see, we're born into the image of the first Adam. Death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. But if we'll place our faith in the Last Adam is our only hope of eternal salvation. He'll bring us out of death. And you too will be able to say, Oh, death, where, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul writes to the church of Corinth, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. See, that's, that's what the last Adam did. He shed his blood, and he paid for our sins so that he could bring us out of death, the death that the first Adam brought us into. I told you to remember a phrase at the beginning of the message. The last analysis of this message hinges upon one matter and one matter only, belief. Will we believe God or will we believe the doubt, denial, and delusion of the devil? 
I'd like you to take your hymn books and turn to song 301. And this will be our hymn of invitation. We'll stand and we'll sing song number 301, Only Trust Him. And as we stand and as the music begins to play and as you make your way to 301, I would like to ask you, who do you believe? Who will you believe this morning? If you're here and you've not yet trusted in Christ as your only hope of a relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity, don't wait. Do it now. Today is the day of salvation. There are people in this room that have not yet trusted Christ as their Savior. Do not let the devil cause doubt to come up in your mind, nor deny the accuracy of God's Word. Don't let him delude you. I'm begging you. I'm asking you to respond now. Respond today. Only trust Him. Believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can be saved. Because if you do not, you have no hope. You have no purpose in life. You're condemned already. It's not a matter of standing before God someday. I mean, this is going to happen. The Bible says you're condemned already and that as an unbeliever, you stand presently under the wrath of God. You are blinded by the devil and on the road to hell if you've not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior. And this invitation is for you to believe what God has said about the person of Christ and about the work of Christ, that He is God in the flesh and that His Death's burial and resurrection, his shed blood, is the only way to have a relationship with God. It's not by baptism. It's not by any religious performance. It's not by any sacrament. It's only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come now. Come today. And place your faith in Christ. Believe God. Don't believe the devil. If you're here today and you're saved, what do you believe? When this word of God is opened, does it put you in a state of lethargy and complacency? Or do you believe when this word of God is opened, whether it's in your private time or whether it's in this public form of preaching, do you believe that this is the word of God, that every word of God is pure? that he's able to preserve his word for all generations. Do you believe that? And I, I honestly would have to say, most of us, uh, theoretically, we believe that. But sometimes it slips, doesn't it? And sometimes that doubt rises up, and sometimes, you know, we begin to ask questions like, well, is that really what God meant? I bet that guy who was picking up those sticks in the wilderness on the Sabbath day thought, surely God wouldn't mind if I just picked up a few sticks. Have we begun to rationalize God and, and try to figure things out when all God wants us to do is have faith and take Him at His word? What about you, saved person? Do you need a renewal of your commitment to the word of God? Do you, do you need to come during this invitation time and say, God, if your word says it, I'm going to do it. 
only trust him. 301 on that first verse. As we sing, the invitation's been given. The appeal's been made. You come.